Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bible and turn to the book of Mark and then the New Testament, the Gospel, which is the oldest of the Gospels. It's agreed among scholars. It was the first of the four Gospels that was written. And most scholars believe, even though it bears the name of Mark, that would be John Mark, who was a relative of the Apostle Peter, was actually Peter's Gospel in the sense that he dictated it probably gave the information to John Mark as an eyewitness of the life of Christ. And we know that Peter was the recognized leader of the apostles, not only by Jesus, but by the apostles themselves. He was a leader in his own way. The year was 400 A.B.C. The place, Thermopylae, which translates into our two words, hot baths. It was a narrow defile, not much over 50 to 80 feet wide. You can go to that spot today, and when you hear what I'm about to tell you, it will seem impossible that what I'm about to tell you occurred. The occasion was war. And the reason for the war was because 10 or so years before this event, Darius, who was the emperor of the Persian Empire, had come and fought against a force of Greek soldiers and suffered a humiliating loss. Xerxes, his son and successor, had brought the most powerful army in the world. To that day, arguably, the greatest army that had ever existed. This army comprised not only of Persians, but many mercenaries, from all the nations that the Persian army had conquered en route, mind you, to this great battle that occurred at Thermopylae in 480 B.C. And this army was so impressive because it was said that it took seven full days for the army to pass in dress review before the emperor Xerxes. Herodotus who was the historian of the day among the Greeks in the 5th century B.C., when he recorded the size of the army, he said there were 3 million who made up the army. Now, preachers are known to exaggerate. Now we know Greek historians probably exaggerated a little bit too. Because 3 million, that's a big number. And even though it was said by Herodotus, and he was a good source. He's really the only source of history in that period of the history of mankind. He said that when that army would travel, the ground would actually tremble. When they would come to a river and they would feed themselves the water of the river and then let their livestock drink, a big river would be reduced to a trickle, basically. It was a big army probably more like a quarter of a million. That's a lot of men too, isn't it? 
80,000 of whom were horsemen, cavalry, the other were infantrymen, and they were ready and loaded for bear, as we would say. At the tip of the spear for that contingency of Persian soldiers was a group known as the Immortals. If you've seen Zack Snyder's rendition of 300, that's the story. And believe it or not, Snyder did a good job of reporting the history of that event. It was a war that was fought not only by the Persian army, but by a coalition of city-states who contributed soldiers to go to battle. Their number varies, depending upon whom you read, to have been between 4,000 and 7,000. That's a small number, comparatively speaking, isn't it, to a quarter of a million, 250,000. The tip of the spear for that contingency were Spartans. There were 300 Spartans, and those 300 men were so well-trained, so self-disciplined, they were so fearless in their fighting. And by the way, in this time in history, and moving forward, really until probably the early 18th century, and maybe even a little further, even into the 19th century, battles of this sort were pitched and they were fought in one day, most often. One day. And it would seem because of the overwhelming odds and the power of the Persian war machine that it might not even last an entire day. But that was not to be the case because of the fierceness and the fearlessness of the Spartans. It was said that as that contingency of 300 Spartans left their hometown en route to fight, one of the mothers of the soldiers said to her son, come back with your shield or on it. And then when the leader of that Spartan group, Leonidas, he was a prince as it were, he was in conversation with a man who was there and he was not known to Leonidas. He knew that that man would be headed in the direction of Sparta when the war was about to crank up and he said to him, stranger, Tell the Spartans that we behaved they would, as they would wish us to behave and we are buried here. Those men went knowing that they were going to fight to the death. And what we need to understand is that's what they did. And they fought valiantly. The battle went to a second day. And then finally a third day. And it probably would have gone even longer had it not been for a traitor. And this traitor told the Persian army of a way to come up behind and over a mountain, and then the Greeks would be caught in a bad, bad situation with no way out. Three days, and the war ended. When we think about this, we think about the fact that we are in a war spiritually. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We know that. But we are no less embroiled in a spiritual battle. And there are certain requirements if we're going to be men and women who are used by God 
to win the war. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the Bible talks about the weapons of our warfare. They're not carnal, and what that simply means, they're not the weaponry that the Spartans used or the Persians used. It's a different kind of weapon that we've been given. We've been given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the choice of the term translated word in our Bibles in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That word is a word, not the common word. The word logos is the normal New Testament word which is used, and that has to do with the entire Bible. But the word that is used is the word rhema, which means a word from the Word of God. And we, if we are wise, will not try to take on the enemy, namely the devil and his minions. We will not take on the world in our own energy. If we do, we're doomed to failure. But we are to realize that among the other aspects of the armor of God, we're to take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Here again, Paul uses the word rhema, which means a customized word for a given situation from the logos, the big W word. And God wants us to see this as we launch in to an understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. When you came to know Jesus, if you know him, if you have yet to volunteer to follow Christ, you will understand this, that God equips the saints, his soldiers, to do the work that he has called us to do. He equips us with the word of God. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be fully equipped. Sounds like a military outfit, doesn't it? Fully equipped for every good work. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his incredible work on discipleship, the cost of discipleship is its title. He wrote it at the tender age of 21 years. He had so much wisdom, and he made this statement. He says, when Christ calls a person to follow him, he bids that person to come and to die. We are called, as surely as the soldiers of Sparta were called. If we know Jesus, we're called. When we think of the word disciple, most of you probably immediately think of the 12, those who were most close to Jesus. Be sure they were disciples, but they were apostles. They had an office that was a more prominent office in the sense that they were the ones that Jesus really poured most of his time into and most of his effort. He would draw aside with them after teaching the multitudes, and then he would explain some of the things that were difficult to understand to them because he knew that when he was gone, he was going to entrust to them not only the teaching, but also the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the good news is when we receive Christ today, we receive his Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer in Jesus Christ. This is why the scripture says in the book of Romans chapter 8, the Bible says that if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, 
He does not belong to Christ. The evidence of my being a follower of Jesus is I know the Spirit is in me. And just as surely as when Jesus said to those 12, really 11 by the time he speaks this because Judas had already left to go to betray him. He says, I will ask the Father and he will send you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, namely the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say a little later in chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, he said, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance everything which I have said to you. And do you know we have that record? Do you know where it's found? It's in the Word of God. And we have access and we have the capacity to understand the Word of God because of the work of the Holy Spirit in teaching us as we yield to Him. A disciple is a person who is a learner. That's what the basic idea of the word disciple means. It means to be a learner. And not an occasional learner, but a lifelong learner a lifelong follower as well. The Western model for learning is much like what we're doing here today. It's like a classroom setting in a way where auditors sit and they listen and they are taught by someone and they hope to receive the message that is intended for them. But in biblical times, when Jesus as a rabbi encircled himself with these 12 disciples whom he called to be apostles, the foundation workers of the church. When he spoke to them, he didn't simply talk to them. He talked to them. Thank God we have a record of so much that he said. Isn't it awesome that we have the very words of Christ that are accessible to us today? But in addition to that, he demonstrated what he taught. He was not one who just said, go do what I say. He said, do what I say and do what you see me do. Come and go with me and see what I do. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus today. We are to go with Christ and he will teach us and then he will instruct us through the word of God and we will see what we are to be and what we are to do. And you say, we only have the Gospels. Well, that would be enough if you look carefully at the way in which Jesus did what he did. But remember what the Apostle Paul said about himself. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. His example was Jesus. He was discipled, not unlike the other 11 apostles, who were given the responsibility to take the gospel and establish the church in the world. But Paul himself was such an individual, and he was discipled. Now let's go now and dig into this passage of Scripture, beginning with verse 34 of chapter 8. And what we're looking for, four things. I'll just go ahead and tell you what they are. The obligations of discipleship. First, then we're going to look at the obstacles to discipleship. Remember what Paul said, writing to the Corinthians. He said this in 1 Corinthians 16, there is a wide door for effective service which is open to me. He must have paused for a moment. 
And then he wrote, but there are many who oppose me. Where there is opportunity to serve the Lord, what we can bank on is that the devil's not going to take it sitting down. He will oppose us. And we need to understand that. And we know there is opposition or obstacles to discipleship. Also, we're going to look at the obsession of the disciple. The disciple of Jesus Christ has a singular focus. And the last thing we'll look at is the objective of discipleship. What's the big deal about being a disciple of Christ? What's the purpose behind it? So let's begin with the obligations of discipleship in verse 34 of Mark 8. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The first obligation of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is self-denial. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself or her deny herself. What does that mean? The word translated deny, the word that Jesus uses, is the same word that Matthew, Mark, and Luke use to describe Peter denying that he knew Jesus Christ. And that word then means the idea of denying any connection with someone or something. What are we saying? We deny any connection. If we're going to be a disciple of Christ, we must deny any connection with ourselves. And that doesn't mean we become someone else. What it does mean is we defer to Jesus over ourselves. We don't check in with self and say, what am I to do? You check in with the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him what he would have you to do. As we read from 2 Timothy chapter 3, right out of the box, when Paul is writing to Timothy, he makes this statement. He says, in the last days, there will be terrible times, difficult times. The translations use different adjectives to describe the times, but they're not good times. They're quite contrary to anything good. Then he said, because men will be lovers of, what tops the list? Self. Lovers of ourself. And that is what we need to get past if we're going to be a disciple of Christ. We need to deny ourselves. We need to learn, listen carefully, to say no to ourselves. I need to learn and have been on a mission, frankly, and I still haven't fully conquered myself, but myself, my flesh is what the Bible describes it as. Myself is my biggest enemy. And that's true for any of us. We have to overcome our selfishness. And that comes by denying ourselves. Here's the second obligation. It's self-sacrifice. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him or her take up his or her cross. Okay, let's stop right there. Luke's rendition of this adds the word daily. Take up your cross daily. Paul himself said, I die daily. I have to deny myself daily, and I have to die to my own wishes daily. And it's because, as I've mentioned, we have what the New Testament describes as our flesh to deal with. It's that part of who we are that wrestles with the Spirit of God. Kind of like when Jacob was wrestling with this 
shadowy figure on the bank of the river Jabbok. Didn't know who that figure was. It turned out to be the Lord himself. He wrestled. We know who's going to win that battle, don't we? But we are wrestling it frequently. We who know Christ, I'm not talking about unbelievers. We wrestled with our own desires, preferring them over that of the Lord. And it's a battle that continues, as far as I can tell, to the end of life. We do know there are a couple of figures in the New Testament who didn't die. Enoch, in the ninth chapter of Genesis, his story is that he walked with the Lord and he was no more. Well, that would be, he was out of here. He was translated. Now, what's interesting about this is that at the age of 65, he began to walk with the Lord. We think when we get to 65, it's about over. And we kind of retire, don't we? He started at the age of 65. There might be a 65-year-old person in here today, male or female, who hasn't started this kind of walk with the Lord. Today could be that day for you. It'll be a great day if you decide this will be the day that you cut ties with your flesh in the sense of knowing the danger associated with that and you trust the Lord to empower you to do what only He can empower us to do. Take up your cross. The cross we know was an instrument of certain death. The Jewish historian who wrote mainly as a member of the emperor of Rome's court said he only knew of three men who came off the cross. Women were not crucified. It was so gruesome and so totally inhumane. But men were. No citizen of Rome could be crucified. That's why the Apostle Paul, when the time came for him to be executed, he was not hanged on a cross. Peter died on a cross. Peter was not a citizen of Rome. Paul was. He was beheaded much more humane, quicker than the cross. It was an awful death that Jesus had to die. Incredible. The preliminaries were enough to kill most men. The flogging, the scourging that he had, 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails, and in the leads on the, that whip would be pieces of metal and glass embedded. And when the one given the responsibility to thrash Jesus would do that, the, the leads would wind around his body and there would be contusions from the lead balls. But then when he would pull that with all his strength, a strong man would pull it, the result would be that pieces of flesh would be dislodged where those contusions were made. And in many cases, the internal organs would be visible. Jesus went through that, and then he went to the cross, dehydrated in shock, probably, and endured the cross. Horrible death. Only three men, as I mentioned, were known to come off the cross alive. Only one of them survived beyond that because they were, the other two were so awfully beaten. And then the other side of the cross, it's an instrument of death, but it's also an instrument of redemption, isn't it? 
Aren't we glad for the cross of Christ? Think about it. Jesus became sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus took the awful humiliation and brutality of the cross so that you and I could know him. But there were many men who died, many men who were heroes who died on a cross, a Roman cross, because they rebelled. They were insurrectionists. They were traitors to the Roman Empire, many. But Jesus didn't just die a hero's death. He died a sinner's death. He became sin, as I mentioned a moment ago. And what that required was that God the Father poured all of his wrath upon Jesus. And this is why Jesus says from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everybody else has left me, Lord, but why have you forsaken me? What was Jesus saying? He was saying what he was experiencing. Every time that Jesus speaks that we have record of in the New Testament, he never speaks of God in any other way as addressing him as Father except in that one statement. And darkness came over the face of the earth. Do you know why? God vacated the place. We know God's omnipresent, but he vacated Jesus. Jesus had had an uninterrupted relationship with God the Father from eternity, and that all ended in that moment because Jesus voluntarily gave his life. He said about himself, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. While we were still enemies of Christ, he laid down his life for us. And so he redeemed us. We can't redeem one another, but we have a place in the redemptive acts of God now. And by that, I mean God has given every one of us his Holy Spirit. We talked about that already. But there is another insight that we need to remember about the work of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was speaking his last words to his apostles and his disciples before he ascended into heaven, he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. So the Holy Spirit has given us the privilege and responsibility of being spokespeople for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's equipped us for it. Has he equipped us? He's given us the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit witnesses through us. The Bible says about you if you know Christ. You'll find this interesting and maybe surprising. The Bible says that you are part of a holy nation. And the word holy is not what we typically think of. It includes being a moral, righteous person in the sense of our understanding what morality and righteousness mean. But this is what it means really. Set apart, a set apart person. And we're set apart for the usefulness that we can give to God. And here's what the Lord wants for us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it does say we are a holy nation. And then later in chapter 4, it says each one of us has been given a gift. The Spirit of God has given us a gift. And those gifts are used to build up the body of Christ, the church. 
Some of us have speaking gifts. Some of us have service gifts. All the gifts which we have been given spiritually are given to us for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. In addition to that, those gifts are given to us that we may glorify the Lord. That's the ultimate purpose any of us has, is that we build up the body of Christ with the gifts which we have for the glory of God. So we're involved in this ministry of redemption. I don't know about you, but most of the time, I don't jump in with both feet when it comes to talking about Jesus to people. Now I do it here. It's easy here because y'all are here because you want to be here. And most of you know the Lord already. Some of you are on a hunt to know the Lord, see if he's for real or not. But what I do know is that it's just not natural to most of us. Now there's sometimes when I just, I'm energetic, want to share Jesus. It's not about my energy, remember, nor yours. It's about whose energy. It's the energy of the Holy Spirit. But what I want to encourage you to understand is what the Bible says also in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, we who know Jesus are part of a royal priesthood. Did you know you're a priest if you know Jesus Christ? You are a priest if you know him. And what is a priest's responsibility? A priest's responsibility is to put God in touch with man and man in touch with God. We're go-betweens. And we, according to that same section of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 2, the Bible says that we were called out of darkness. That darkness would be a place of spiritual darkness, spiritual death, out of darkness into His marvelous light in order that we might declare His riches, the excellencies of His riches of mercy to mankind. We have the privilege of sharing Christ with other people. Now I know what runs through your minds when you hear what I'm talking to you about. Many of you say, oh, here we go again, you know. The preacher's talking about the imperative nature of our sharing our faith. Well, I am talking about that. And I know what went through my mind, and to this day still sometimes does go through my mind. I get a message, and it's not coming from the Holy Spirit. I know that. It's either coming from my flesh or the devil or one of his minions, and it is, they don't want to hear what you have to say. Just let them be who they are, and you mind your own business. Anybody ever have that kind of message coming? Or maybe you've had this kind of message come into your mind. You might say, well, I might say the wrong thing, and I might make that harder for that person to come to know Jesus because I might mislead that person. Have any of you said that before? And some of you have just said, I don't want to. I just don't want to. Well, let me tell you, the Lord wants you to be in the mainstream of His will for you as one of the members of the royal priesthood. There's nothing that I've experienced in my long time of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and seeking to follow Him as His disciple. Nothing more invigorating than to see someone come to know Jesus in a personal one-to-one -one situation. I used to say when I was young, 
and that's been a long time ago. I used to say, I led so-and-so to Christ, or I led so-and-so to Christ. And the Holy Spirit convicted me, said, you didn't lead anybody to Christ, Mike. Christ found somebody through you. It was He who gave the gospel. It was the Holy Spirit who gave you the empowerment. So here's what sharing Jesus is all about. It's sharing the person of Jesus Christ, the simple gospel. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. He was buried, and He was raised again on the third day, according to the Scripture. The gospel is a simple message, and there's power in the gospel. Paul writes to the Romans, he says, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. We are so stuck on ourselves that we really don't pause to listen to what God says in His Word. And we deprive ourselves of the opportunity to help people come to Christ, to be a tool in God's hands, to be a redemptive tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit, to lead people. I use that word again. Excuse me, Lord to introduce people to Jesus. If you had a good friend with you, every once in a while I have a friend come in to town, from out of town, from another era in my life, and I care for that friend, and we'll be out somewhere in public, and when somebody I know comes up, like if I see you in a public place, I'll say, this is so-and-so, my friend from, and I'll tell where he's from. What would you think if I saw you and my friend is there and you know he's with me or she's with me and I talk to you and I never acknowledge this person over here? What would you think? You'd conclude one of two things, maybe three. One is, I can't remember your name, so it'll be hard for me to introduce him without <laughs> telling him who you are. That has happened to me a time or two, for sure. I can't remember your name. Or... I just don't want him to know you. I'm ashamed of him, maybe. Or I'm ashamed of you. I don't know. <laughs> but that's the way it goes sometimes. But the good news is that we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we just have to be available to the Lord. The God we know is not ignorant of our inability. And where are we going to push people toward. They're already lost and don't know Christ, and their destination is not a good destination. And we might, just might be, and probably will be a tool in the hand of the Lord. I remember how for two years, probably at least, I kept begging the Lord, Lord, help me to lead someone to Christ. And then when I thought I was on the brink of opening my mouth and sharing the gospel, I didn't know about the role of the Holy Spirit at that time in the whole matter of sharing the gospel. Then I'd kind of freeze up and I'd miss the opportunity that the Lord had put right in front of me. But I remember I was at a Young Life camp in Colorado at Silver uh, Cliff Ranch there. And I had taken a group of students from Memphis, Tennessee, where I led a Young Life Club, and we had gone there. And a friend of mine, one of the young men, he was 17 years old, his name was Gary Pittman. He was a dope-er, and he was a dope dealer. 
saw I was told. I knew he was a regular use, user of illegal drugs, but I also was told he was a, a person who sold drugs. And he and I had a moment. I'd been praying for him for two years probably. We had a moment of privacy together. We were on the top of the roof of a cabin there in the beautiful Rocky Mountains of Colorado. And I finally got up my nerve and I said, Gary, would you like to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you ever thought about that? And you could knock me over with a feather. He said, I've been wanting to do that a long time. Wow. Here was a guy I would have thought probably was not going to want to receive Christ because of the lifestyle he had. But the man received Christ. The last time I talked to Gary, probably he's been 15 years ago. You know how time gets away when you're old as I am, real quick. But he was a teacher and a coach in a Christian school in Memphis, Tennessee. 35 or 40 years later, still walking with the Lord. That's exciting to see what God does. And one more thing before I move on to the rest of this message. And it's simply this. If you don't share Jesus with somebody that the Lord has his sights on, then he's going to send someone else to get in on the joy and the pleasure of that. Don't cheat yourself. He's going to get the gospel to that person. I believe that. You remember the story of Esther and her guardian, Mordecai, said, about a situation that was very dangerous for all the Jewish people in the kingdom, the Persian Empire, if you will, the Medo-Persian Empire. There was a, an attempt to wipe all of them out. And he said, maybe you're in the place of the queen for such a time as this. But if you don't step up, God will send deliverance from somewhere else. We have the opportunity and the power, <coughs> excuse me, in the Holy Spirit to do that. Let's look at the last obligation here in the passage of Scripture, and it is to follow Christ. And this is a command <coughs> that means keep on following Him. And I played the childhood game of follow the leader. You probably did too. And in order to win the game, what did I have to do? Keep my eyes on the leader. Do what the leader did. That's what it means to be a disciple. Follow Christ. Put him in the center of your attention. Now let's look at the obstacles to discipleship. If you're taking notes, the first one is self-indulgence. Self-indulgence is the opposite of putting self first, isn't it? Self-indulgence. Another one is self-preservation. We want to isolate and insulate ourselves in a sense that we don't want to be men or women who are inconvenienced or hurt in some way. And then overall, it's self-centeredness. Now let's look at verses 35 and following in Mark 8. For whoever would save his life, and the word life is soul, actually, in the New Testament language, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Jim Elliott, the martyr for the Gospel in 
door in the Amazon basin back in the mid-1950s says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. You can't keep your soul. It's not yours to keep. The Lord has responsibility and ownership. But if we hold tightly in fear of not staying safe, then we are people who are doing the very thing that will end in our bitter defeat instead of the victory that God would have us to as we deny ourselves and take up our crosses daily and follow Him. Verse 36 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What is the world? It's mankind organized in opposition against God. It's the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life and the lust of the flesh. It's wanting more things. It's self-indulgence. It's wanting to do things outside the framework of God's established pattern and plan for our physical release, whether it has to do with sex or with food or whatever. Any natural God-given drive, God sanctions. He was the creator of man, male, and female. Sexuality is not the purview of the devil initially. We are made man and woman, one man, one woman for life in a relationship that has a strong sexual component. And it's a, ma a big part of being a married person. It's great. It's God's idea. Food, I love food. I'm going to eat some here in just a few minutes. It's going to be really good. But I'm careful not to overeat. Why? Here's why. Not so I can be healthy. That's a byproduct of what I'm about to say. I don't want to overeat because my body is not my own. I have been bought with a price. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and I want to be as fit as I can be for as long as I can be so that the Lord can get the most He wants to get out of my life to be honoring to Him. That's right. Self-centeredness, we see that here, don't we? When we want to get control of the things of the world. We, we brag about things and we accumulate things. There's nothing wrong with having things. The Bible says actually in the book of Timothy, the first Timothy 6 chapter, the scripture says God gives us everything richly to enjoy. Then he explains the best use of those things that we enjoy. Share them with one another. There's nothing quite like giving yourself away and you give yourself away by sharing the material things of life with others in the name of Christ for the glory of God. Look at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angel. Jesus is coming again. When he comes, he's going to divide mankind into two groups, the goats and the sheep. The goats will be known because they didn't do the things they were created to do in their first birth, and they only have one birth. The sheep are those who have been born twice, been born again, and been renewed. They have become new creatures in Christ, new creations. And part of that new creation 
is a person who has Christ dwelling in him or her. I've already mentioned the Holy Spirit lives in you, but also we know that Christ in us is the hope of glory. And we also know in Colossians chapter 3, the Bible says, set your mind on things above where Christ is. And then he goes on to say in that same section that Christ is in you and Christ, listen to this, is your life. That doesn't mean he's simply the one for whom we live. That's true. But he is the one who is the life. He is the one who indwells us. He is the one who gives us that which is necessary to fulfill our intended purpose of doing good. We're to go about like Jesus did. This is what Luke writes about Jesus in the book of Acts. He was a man who went about doing good. Does it stand to reason that if Jesus did that when he was in his body on earth, that he's not doing that through people like you and me today? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is who you are in Christ. He indwells you. And he's going to behave as he's always behaved through you the way he's always intended to minister through you. Now let's look at the obsession of the disciple of Christ. Let's look at this whole passage, just reading it, and I'm going to ask you to, with me, count up the number of times that Jesus makes reference to himself. If anyone would come after me, that's one, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, two, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, three, and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me, four, and of my words, five, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he, six, comes in the glory of his Father, seven, with the holy angels? Now, I probably missed one along there. You do the math. But Jesus is the focal point of our lives. If we know Christ, we fix our eyes on him. After all, he is the one that we trust. The objective of discipleship, what's this all about? In John 15, 8, Jesus says, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's how God is glorified. Earlier, Jesus has said in chapter 12 of John, 24 and following, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He was talking about himself, but he's talking about us too in advance. Because what does he tell us to do? If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So we want to glorify the Lord. How do we do it? By dying to ourselves. We've come full circle here. And so that when we do stand, as I already mentioned, before the Lord, he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you want to hear that from him someday? And please understand that when the Bible talks about God's servants, 
He's not talking about preachers and missionaries. Hopefully we're in there. He's talking about all of us. We're part of a holy priesthood. And the good news about your priesthood as compared to mine is this. You do it for nothing. I'm talking about for no dollars. I won't ever know if I would have done what I've done for the last 45 years. I won't ever know if I would have done what I've done had it not been for money. I don't think I do it for money. I did it without thought of money before. I didn't go into this for the money. But I don't know, but you know. You do it because you love the Lord. And you can do it with pure motives. And the Lord has equipped you to do it. He's provided you the opportunity. This city is ripe for the gospel. I know it. I just know it because of the people that walk off the street into this place. Some are here maybe even today. You just came. We know people who come here looking for truth and they find the truth because Christ is in this church. We're no different than any other church, but we want Jesus to be central. We want to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We want to help people to become disciples of Christ and fulfill their intended purpose. C.S. Lewis, a man who has influenced many of you, myself included, wrote these words. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way, and let Jesus take us over, the more we truly become ourselves. The way to be free as a person, to be who you are supposed to be, is to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Has God spoken to you today about your need to become his disciple. Would you just say to the Lord, if that's your heart, you know whether the Lord's spoken to you. Don't don't stiff arm him today. Just pray to him, Lord, I think I want to be a disciple. I think I understand it's a high, high calling. I don't know if I can do it, Lord but I want to give my life to you. I want to let you take over completely. I want to quit playing with this idea of being a Christian. I want to give my life to you today. Would you please, Lord, empower me to deny myself, to take up my cross in following you and serving you, serving others today. And Lord, Just help me to want to fix my eyes on you all the time and learn from you. Be your disciple. I give myself to you fully today, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Hope you have a great week following the Lord.